Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation witch. I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were rolling back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, "Is there evidence of human sacrifice?" Yes. We found a man with his fingers sliced off. I'm sitting here scrolling through Facebook and I see the Bohemian art show and ask Adam if, if there's a place called Bohemia and apparently there is. And, you know, I go look it up on Wikipedia cause I have no idea. Apparently it's like twenties hipsters and <laughs> what, what's the painter's name again? Uh, Renoir. Ren, yeah. Renoir paints some, <laughs> some fine ass chicks. <laughs> he had good what taste. What was the phrase that you said earlier? Like, damn, she looks pretty good for the 1800s. <laughs> That's pretty hot for 1868. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's true, man. Like Ren, Renoir had good taste. 
<laughs> well, we've already established on tonight's episode that Renoir had good taste in women. Thanks to uh, Mr. Luke here. <laughs> I, I like the thickness of like all those old school uh, Baroque paintings, you know, like the thickness of the chicks. Yeah, like the, the uh, what is it? Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Bruegel or something like Bruegel's women. They're all, they're all, they're all, they're all kind of like chunky women. Yeah. Big hips. <laughs> Always nude. Well, well, we, we know what kind of women Luke likes. So. We, we know too, what kind. Too bad he's already taken the ladies out. There, the ladies that are that's, that's actually what my girl looks like too. <laughs> is, she, is, she, is she is she a Bruegel goddess? Is that what you're, is yeah. that what you're saying? And yeah. <laughs> Maybe in a past life I was a famous painter. I doubt it. You no, must have been. You must no, have I been. wasn't. And, and there was also another uh, painter. Now don't laugh. His name was Titian. Okay. <laughs> And he drew the same kind of women as well. So he was rad too. He was yeah, pretty rad. Oh, also two weeks in a row, man. Yeah. I mean, like right. almost in the same week um, that you're, that you're here. You know, I've, I've been just in my boxers all day staring at the computer screen. So I had to get up and break up the monotony a little bit. <laughs> throw some pants on, go outside. Yeah, yeah. Adam made me put pants on. I wasn't happy about yeah, it. Yeah, I told him, you know, to get here to the show, and he's like, well, do I have to put on pants? And I said, yeah, I mean, you got to put on pants. <laughs> you, you wouldn't want anything just flopping out while we're sitting here talking. <laughs> no, that probably wouldn't be good. You know? <laughs> uh, tonight, we guys, we have Brian Gadawa coming back on. We're going to talk about his book about the first emperor of China, his first book in the Watcher series. But... Uh, we, since we had, uh, Steven on last week and we were gone for three weeks, I wanted to hit a story that we were talking about that I've just kind of barely mentioned last week. And that is the story about the Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo, Michigan shooter. And this is some interesting stuff. And I want Rob to play a clip and then I'm going to read a story about it. So Rob, if you want to play that clip real quick. New developments in that shooting rampage in Michigan. Police say the suspect, an Uber driver, is blaming the company's mobile app for his rampage. ABC's Gio Benitez is here with more on that. Good morning, Gio. Robin, good morning well, to you. This is bizarre. He allegedly compared there, the Uber app to the devil, saying it controlled his mind and body the moment he would open that app. This as we hear new calls from that awful day. Somebody shot, fire shot, she on the ground, the car sped off. This morning, newly released 911 calls capturing the scene, the alleged Kalamazoo shooter left behind. One car is okay, the other one is a minivan and the passenger is not moving. The spree ending in this moment, police catching up with the suspect, Jason Dalton. And police now releasing this dash cam video showing his capture. Investigators say Dalton, an Uber driver, went on a shooting spree three weeks ago, killing six. Just look, it's a calm arrest. He gets out of the car, is handcuffed, and police take him away. One detained firearm on a person at 41 minutes. And now new details from Dalton's police interview. After his arrest, the 45-year-old allegedly telling them that Uber literally took over his mind and body and made him feel like a puppet. Dalton allegedly going on to describe the Uber logo as a devil figure. Quote, it would give you an assignment and it would literally take over your whole body. It was almost like artificial intelligence that can tap into your body. This morning, the youngest shooting victim, 14-year-old Abigail Koff, is still in the hospital. This photo from her GoFundMe page showing her laughing, surrounded by her sister and her stuffed animals. 
and when the shooting first happened, Uber said it was horrified and heartbroken at the senseless violence. As for Dalton himself, he told police he remembers the shootings, but nothing else about that day. Yeah, okay, but the headline here, there, Abigail, the what? Yeah. Uh, and the screaming in the background is recorded from an ABC News clip. I don't think that's the uh, I don't think that's the damned in hell or anything like that. <laughs> it did sound sort of like yeah, that. it did sound sort of like that. Are they broadcasting from like a high school sporting event or something? Uh, yeah, this is like in the I guess ABC Studios, like in the middle of like Times Square, or wherever. And uh, it's probably just some event going on, people screaming, some celebrity or something like that uh, that you hear. Okay. Very interesting. Jason Dalton, the man who pulled off this shooting that killed six people in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Now, we talked about this. God, I want to say it was probably the beginning of last month or maybe even the end of February that we talked about it. And I was kind of drawing some parallels to him shooting six people and it hardly getting any news coverage as opposed to the guy who killed the news people in Virginia. And that got like coverage out the wazoo for like two days. This thing, hardly any. Yeah, it was at the end of February because it was around the time of the South Carolina primary. And we were thinking that may have been the reason why it didn't get much, um, didn't get much hype. But anyway, Jason Dalton said that the Uber app made him do it and actually have an article here that has a little bit more detail on this. Um, the Uber driver who allegedly massacred six people in Michigan last month, this was in this articles from March says the devil made him do it by sending him satanic messages through the email services app cops revealed yesterday. Jason Dalton, who allegedly gunned down his victims in between picking up fares, told detectives that an inverted multicolored pentagram known as the Eastern Star suddenly appeared on his smartphone, followed by a satanic image, according to newly released police documents. This is up your alley, Luke. Dalton acknowledged that he recognized the Uber symbol as being that of the Eastern Star, and a devil head popped up on his screen. And when he pressed the button on the app, that is when all the problems all the problems started. Police wrote in documents released by the Kalamazoo Department of Public Safety and reported by Michigan media outlets. Dalton told us that literally, when he logged onto Uber's app, it started making him be like a puppet. The police document said. He claimed that the devil head would give you an assignment and would literally take over your whole body. One detective noted, I asked Dalton what made him get his gun tonight, and he said the Uber app made him. Dalton is accused of opening fire at three locations during his February 20th onslaught in his hometown of Kalamazoo. He told cops that he selected his victims at random and didn't remember all of the incidents and that he put on a bulletproof vest because the devil told him to do so through the app. Dalton said he didn't get into a shootout with the cops who caught him only because the color of his Uber app changed from black to red. His wife, Carol, told investigators that her husband arranged to meet her at his parents' house in the middle of his killing spree that night, according to the, to the Detroit Free Press. Dalton claimed he was being targeted by a jealous cabbie, but she said she didn't believe him. The accused killer is said to undergo a mental exam at the request of his lawyer. All right. And then he goes on to talk about this girl, the only survivor, Abigail Kopf, who was uh, shot point-blank range and is still in the hospital, but has made somewhat of a miraculous recovery. Uh, yeah. 
Let me get to, I sent you this article. Yeah. When it came out, I think I sent it to you, Rob. I'm going to get your, th- you guys thoughts on that before I go on. <clears throat> Cause well, what had, a bizarre story. Yeah. I, I, and a bizarre twist to the whole thing. I hadn't heard about the whole, um, demonic possession from the Uber app stuff. I knew that he was an Uber driver and that's about, yeah. all, you know, all I had heard of it, but man, that's crazy. I'm I'm really not too interested because I feel like he just made all that crap up to like uh, help his insanity plead insanity case. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're going to try to convince someone that you're crazy, just start telling them that you're seeing stuff and right. Yeah. You know. So so yeah. I mean, is it so? Is it the is it the oldest defense in the book of the devil made me do it, or is it? Some or is or is there anything else? Anything else to it? Well, that that's what that stupid redneck said in like Kentucky that drove into the church. Oh, it was Virginia that drove into the church and like killed all those people with their car, or wait, k- killed one or two and injured a, a few or something like that. Are you talking about the one? Like I think there was nobody in the church. Oh, uh, okay. But the, the where she crashed into the church and she yeah, ended yeah, up yeah. in the pew. Yeah, the yeah. devil made her do that too. That's what she said. The devil made her do it. Yeah. Of course, you know, there's a lot of people on meth out there, you know, <laughs> a lot of people on drugs. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I really want to say, hey, guy is just trying to make excuses and say that Uber out made me do it. Maybe try to put some kind of uh, some kind of blame on Uber. In some kind of weird <laughs> roundabout way. It's a phone app. Like, don't do what it yeah. says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah. it no. Yeah. But also at the same time, you know, we've talked about mind control stuff on this on this show quite a few times. We talked to Marie Jones last year about it. Uh, you know, we've talked about the MK Ultra stuff, and it, it does sound a little bit like a trigger mechanism to make somebody go nuts. Now, interesting that he picks the Eastern Star, which does look like, admittedly, does look like an upside-down pentagram, right? Yeah. The Eastern Star is the order of the Eastern Star. It's a symbol of the order of the Eastern Star, which is the female version, the women's version of Freemasonry. Whoa. Did you even know about that prior? Yeah, I do about that prior. As soon as I heard about the, he said that it was the Eastern star that, uh, that did it or said that he said that he saw the Eastern star and then this demon, some, some other news source said it was a demonic cow head that popped up on, on his phone and, uh, told him to go around shooting people. And I, I, I'm just, I'm perplexed on what exactly the Eastern star order of Freemasonry has to do with anything. Now it would really blow my mind if I found out that the two old women that he killed in the parking lot of the Cracker Barrel were members of Eastern star, but I haven't done the research and I haven't seen it, seen that put anywhere. So I'm just going to say, I have no idea. And it's just a strange, strange defense. And it could it possibly be that, hey, this guy's been mind controlled? Maybe. 
weirder things have happened, but to what purpose and to what end? Yeah. Because as we said before, if you're going to do have a mind controlled assassin, and we've looked at that in light of people like Sir Hans or Han or Mark David Chapman, usually it's people that um, you're targeting people that are famous. Yeah, there was no John Lennon's. Yeah. Taken down by this guy. Right. It was just ordinary people in, in this town. Unless these are important people in Kalamazoo and somebody had it out for them. So, you know, I mean, you, you, you can go any number of ways with this stuff. Um, so it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. And then plus, as I said before on the show, we talked about it on, it didn't get any media coverage. Where is the coverage? He got some that night, but then the next day, nobody was talking about it. And so is that an element of it too? Is this guy, is this guy trying to, to get as much in March? Was he trying to get as much media coverage as he could by saying the devil made him do it? Was he possibly a, did he possibly study this MK ultra, uh, evidence or this, this material that's online. And he just decided that's going to be his defense. I mean, it's no more silly than the Twinkie defense. What's the Twinkie defense? <laughs> what? <laughs> the Twinkie defense <laughs> was this uh, guy who shot, um, who's the guy? Harvey Milk. He shot the mayor of San Francisco and killed Harvey Milk, who was the gay, um, I guess he was a, Metro, a Metro Council person or something. There was a movie Sean Penn did called Milk that was about him. And the guy, but the guy who shot him and killed Harvey Milk actually used this defense and said that he was, he had been eating nothing but junk food, including Twinkies, and so out of his mind because of it that he shot the guy. Yeah, that's pretty weak. He called it the Twinkie defense. <laughs> <laughs> so is this is this just the same kind of just like the Twinkie defense, or or could there be anything more? Could there be anything more to it, or just the, more the ramblings of a madman? I mean, they need to take this guy, and I don't know what's happened since that. You know, that article is March fourteenth, so I don't know what happened between now and between then and now whether they've done any kind of analysis on him, because apparently according to everybody that was around this guy, he just snapped. Like he didn't have any, uh, background of any kind of mental illness was able to get these guns. And basically until this happened on that night, there was no problem with this guy. So, yeah, you know, what's the deal? Uh, it seems like, I don't know. It just seems like such a weak. He could have come up with something way better. Yeah. I mean, that's so out there and so random and so not going to work. Yeah. I, I just can't get around. It's like, I, I want to be conspiratorial and I want to say, yeah, it was a, it was the, it was really the Uber app and they were telling him that they oh. turned him into a mind controlled assassin <laughs> to kill all these people. But why? 
usually when I look at the conspiracy stuff, there's a clear agenda. I'm like, what's the reason why? Yeah. Okay. If Mark David Chapman was a mind controlled assassin, big if, if he was, well, he got rid of John Lennon. And the reason would have been to get rid of Lennon because he was a 60s radical and that the Reagan administration wouldn't have won him there. Um, if John Hinckley was a mind controlled assassin and they shot Reagan, well, maybe that would have made room for Bush. There's always some kind of motive. But in this case, like, why? Unless, unless, like I said, it was a local thing and somebody there was like, they they used it. Or just a random test. Yeah. Maybe so. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's, there's, there's been a lot of these kind of things going on. Like, you know, the, the voice to skull stuff of hearing, uh, something that can make you hear voices in your head. Um, that's been going on for a while. This, um, uh, what is it? This, the, all this surveillance that happens. I mean, who knows? See if we can make somebody go crazy. It's just, it's just speculation. Well, is there anything that you could think of that makes you angry for no reason and shouldn't? <laughs> I don't know. Another aspect of this too, though, is, uh, is Uber itself. Like, uh, ever since that happened, I've done some study on Uber and they've been getting some, they've had, they've had some problems, man. Like here in Nashville, in Antioch. Of the salts and everything. Yeah. This, this guy Sexual raped harassment. a girl. Dude, he was an Uber, he was an Uber driver. Drive, I mean, right. Some, some, this, this girl called for her friend. Her friend was drunk, put her in the car with this guy, expecting that he's going to take her home. Well, apparently he had driven around and you know, you can, you know, the, the person that calls in, they can track where the Uber driver is. So it's like, that's the other dumb thing, right? I mean, they can track where you are at all given time. So if you're going to commit a crime, it's stupid to have your Uber app on. But (laughs) so he was driving around in circles, apparently. And she called the cops and they found out later he sexually assaulted this girl, raped her in the car. And Uber's been getting a lot of flack, especially after this happened in, in Michigan, about their background checks about whether you have to, you know, apparently they've, they've caught people that uh, driving for Uber that had manslaughter charges that have had sexual assault charges that have had all other kinds of weapons charges, all other kinds of stuff. It sounds like they're record. just, they're too they, cheap. They don't do like they say they do background checks. Yeah, I signed up for it. Yeah. You know, I was, do, I did it for a little while and it, you know, supposedly you do your background check and in two, three days it's back. Yeah. I, I was saying they, you've got the simple one and the full one though. And they're probably too cheap to do a full one on everyone. Cause it costs a lot more. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I mean, that's scary, man. It's like, it, it, it would be better just to, I, mean, I could see going to Uber in like a group, but like the girl too, that put the, her in the car. It's like, why was she not with her friend? Yeah. Too, you know, and like inebriated and, and then there's another, there's the other part of it too. Like, you know, there's customers that, uh, that are assaulting the Uber drivers as well. So it, it goes both ways. I saw that. Yeah. Apparently something happened here in Nashville. Like some girl, uh, guy tried to rape her is what I've heard. I haven't been able to 
substantiate it. But like, yeah, it's just, it's just don't, crazy. Don't get, get in the in, car with strangers. Who you get in your car with? <laughs> you you show me something online. You show me something on Facebook. Some some girl was posting and it had the picture of the Uber driver because it shows you the picture of the driver, and it he she was saying this guy tried to fill me up or whatever. You know, try oh, to touch me. Yeah, one of, the, one of the hip sites, like hip Mount Juliet or hip hip yeah. Hermitage. Yeah. So I mean, Uber itself has just gotten a lot of problems over this stuff. So Twinkie defense. <laughs> Twinkies real, make me mad. Real quick, make you hungry. No, dude. Like you feel guilty after eating something as as trashy as a Twinkie. <laughs> like I feel guilty right now. That's why I'm all like sludge beast right now because. I ate a bunch of chips and dip before I got here. Now, did any Twinkies? <laughs> so, Twinkie defense. This is from the Book of Knowledge, aka Wikipedia. Is a derisive label for an improbable legal defense. It is not a recognized legal defense in jurisprudence, but a catch-all term coined by reporters during their coverage of the trial of defendant Dan White for the murders of San Francisco City Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor George Muscone. White's defense was that he suffered diminished capacity as a result of his depression. His change in diet from healthy food to Twinkies and other <laughs> sugary food was said to be a symptom of depression. Contrary to common belief, White's attorneys did not argue that the Twinkies were the cause of White's actions, but their consumption was symptomatic of his underlying depression. White was convicted of voluntary manslaughter. Oh, Twinkie didn't defense work. didn't work. Twinkie defense did not work, which makes me think that probably the devil made me do it because the Uber app told me to. It's probably not going to work for Jason Dalton, even though. Who knows if there's anything to it, but you're never going to be able to prove it. That's the other part of it. You never if it was an experiment gone wrong or if it was. Uh, if it was really meant to happen, that he killed somebody important in that community, you're never going to be able to prove that. So, and you you told me once that like Mountain Dew made you go into a rage, Luke. It I did. I, I talked about it on an earlier show, like like real real early in the series, but it it really did, dude. I started losing my mind, and like I, I've had um. <laughs> I've had cases or instances before where like I've had too much caffeine and all it would do to me is just make me anxious. Not like really angry, but just like anxious, like really anxious and shaky feeling yeah. and like start breaking out into a cold sweat or something. And I have to just kind of ride it out. But this particular time I was, I was broke and couldn't afford, you know, much food. So like I was just sipping on Mountain Dew all day. Eating and, Twinkies. Yeah, well, just whatever I could find. And then, uh, I'm outside in the heat too. So the caffeine and the Mountain Dew and whatever else crazy kind of chemicals that's in it and all that combined maybe turn me into a rage beast, dude. (laughs) I was, I was like walking up and down the street looking for someone to fight. It was crazy. I was like growling at people. (laughs) (laughs) You you went back to a primal animalistic urges. I did, man. (laughs) <laughs> Mountain Dew <laughs> I'll never drink Mountain Dew again <laughs> Maybe that's why rednecks are so aggressive Rob do you have anything to add to any of that Oh just why did it have to happen in Michigan Oh yeah Mountain True. don't <laughs> <laughs> True And you know, like a place called Kalamazoo too you know? Yeah 
All right, guys, we're going to take a break here, uh, break for us, but uh, we're going to get Brian Gadawa on. And also, too, uh, want to mention, uh, just to mention the Paradigm Symposium one more time. We're going to be there next month in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're looking real forward to that. And hopefully anybody that's listening uh, would love for you guys to come out and be a part of that, hang out with us there. So let's uh, go to Brian, and we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Buckle up for adventures, strap on your thinking gear, and prepare yourself to be inspired. The 4th Annual Paradigm Symposium is coming again to Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 12th through the 15th. An eclectic cast of presenters, including Scott Walter from History Channel's America Unearthed, Randall Carlson of Sacred Geometry International, historian and ufologist Rich Dolan, conspiracy, cryptozoology, and UFO writer Nick Redfern, and keynote hermeticist Lon Milo Duquette, as well as several other researchers and pundits in the fields of the academic the weird, and the unknown, with topics that range from archaeology and hidden history to alternative science, ancient aliens, paleocontact, and world mysteries. Tickets are now on sale at the website. To see all the details for this amazing event and symposium, and to get your tickets now, go to ParadigmSymposium.com. Come to learn, leave inspired. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspira Normal. And, of course, as always, it's your host, Adam Sane, and over here, the producer, Rob, and the man of the hour, Mr. Well, the man of the century, Mr. Luke Skyrider over here. <laughs> and on the line, we have Brian Gadawa, and we uh, actually started off the year uh, with Brian. He was our first show in 2016, and we were talking about kind of a – large overview of his Chronicles of the Nephilim series. And we kind of got into a lot of interesting stuff in that, but uh, Brian has now started a new series and has a new book out. And I wanted to talk about that. And that is the Chronicles of the Watchers. And it's called the first emperor of China. Welcome back, Brian, to Conspiracy Normal. Thanks for having me, Adam. Love to be here. Hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, always great to have you on. Uh, I, I want to talk about, you know, you've done the Chronicles of the Nephilim. I believe that was what, how many books was that in that se- seven? Eight. Eight. Okay. And now you're starting Chronicles of the Watchers. Mm-hmm. And what are we getting into here with the Watchers? You know, first of all, who are the Watchers yeah. or what were they? Somebody that may not be familiar with that and how are you kind of working that into into this series. Sure. Well, you know, the previous, just to sort of set the stage, the previous series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, um, the, the premise of that series was that I had, I wanted to retell Bible stories that had giants in them. And, you know, there are a lot of mentions of giants throughout the text, not just Goliath, right? And uh, there are lots of others. And sometimes they're mentioned very briefly and there's not that much information on them. But, um, rather than being just some strange uh, his, historic anomaly, um, it, I dis, when I did the research, I found out that there was a theological storyline that was going on throughout the whole Bible, from the Old Testament all the way to the New. And this, when I learned this, you know, six years ago or so, um, it just opened my eyes in a way that I saw the Bible in a fresh new way. And it wasn't in anything 
different than what I had learned from as a normal Christian. It was just sort of opening it up and expanding it type of thing. But it also sort of illuminated to me the notion, this, the divine counsel worldview, which is this, the notion in the Bible that, that um, God has a heavenly host is what he calls them, or they're called the sons of God. And they are divine beings that are also called gods in, um, for instance, in Psalm 82 and in Psalm 85. They're called gods, obviously not the same kind as God is, uh, you know, Yahweh is, but nonetheless they are. So they're, de- they're divine beings of some kind in the Bible. And this is, of course, to my evangelical background, this is really weird um, and hard to, to accept because, you know, just challenging to sort of the cultural norms that I've been raised in. But as I looked in it more, I found that this is this fascinating storyline that simply reinforced what I think is, you know, the biblical message of, of you know, not only Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, but but uh, you know, God, God as as the the um, the supreme God over all of creation, the creator of all things, and this kind of stuff. But also that He has this, you know, basically a divine bureaucracy in a way. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is the <clears throat> the divine council material that uh, Dr. Heiser has spoken about. Exactly. In fact, uh, Michael Heiser is one of my friends and he was the guy, it was his work that actually opened my eyes to this. And so I, I wrote this series. It started with Noah Primeval. That was the first book. Then it went to Enoch. I, it was like a prequel, which tells the story of Enoch. And of course, you know, if you know the Bible, there's only two sentences on Enoch in the Bible, right? So sure. yeah, I, I used a lot of creative imagination to fill in between the lines, but in a way that was consistent with the Bible, in a way that that made sense of the stuff we don't know. But I also, I sort of, I call these supernatural history or biblical fantasy. What I mean by that is I sort of use the fantasy genre in a way of showing the spiritual reality that we don't normally see showing that reality and inter interweaving it within the story. Um, and, you know, because the Bible does show us some of spiritual reality, right? But not not all. So we get glimpses of it, right? So anyway, this was the driving force. And part of that divine counsel understanding is that God has, um, these divine beings are called, sun, many names, they're called the holy ones. You know, you could do this study for yourself at the whole Old Testament. Um, the holy ones, they're called the heavenly host. They're called sons of God, B'nai Ha Elohim. Well, and this is getting to the watchers, see, because, um, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, it, it talks about God says that at the Tower of Babel, when he split the nations and divided the languages, he basically said that mankind was so evil, they continue, even after the flood, they just went right back to worshiping false gods, right? So he said, well, I'm going to give you over to those false gods. So he, it says that he, you know, he's, um, he allotted the nations under the authority of the sons of God. And who are these sons of God, these divine beings? And it's sort of like, if you know the big picture, it's basically fallen, angelic, heavenly host who um, fell to earth, came to earth in the days of, of Jared before Noah. And, you know, at that time, they violated God's laws. They interbred with humans. Bizarre stuff, I know. But nonetheless, they're rebellious. And then God says, after the flood, since mankind continues to live in rebellion, I will give you under their authority, but I will keep Jacob or Israel as my own. So in other words, it's like he says, oh, by the way, another term for these sons of God is watchers. And and we read about that in the book of Daniel. Well, Daniel talks about how these watchers are over the nations. And you had the prince of Persia, which is a spiritual being, the prince of Greece and the prince of Israel, which is Michael. 
and and there's Gabriel in that pick in that whole thing as well. But he talks about how so we see this notion that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 32 that says that the pagan nations are under these fallen sons of God. So it's not you know it's not just that they're under angelic authority, but behind all earthly authority, this is the biblical worldview. Behind the earthly authorities, there are heavenly authorities or spiritual principalities and powers. This is what Paul writes about, you know. Um, the principalities and powers, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers behind them. And so in the ancient world, they understood that the, the, the powers on earth um, were guided and under the authority of heavenly powers. This is this sort of what, what I call the watcher paradigm. Right. And, and I want to say, I, I want to say too, oh, go ahead. Uh, Brian, before you continue, is that this concept, uh, the Deuteronomy 32, uh, the Tower of Babel uh, in relation to Deuteronomy 32, when I read Dr. Heiser's book, uh, The, the um, Unseen Realm, it, it was, that to me was extremely fascinating. I had never yeah. thought about the Tower of Babel. So, I mean, you, you know, yeah, you get this stuff in Sunday school. You get it through tradition, whatever, yeah. and and you don't and you think, okay, well, that's could that just been a way to explain the different languages? But then you realize that hey, there's more to it, even if it, it to the story yeah. than just that. And, and that was uh, until I read that, and this was last year. I had never had never thought about that story in those terms that there was an actual authority that was being given to these lesser beings as yes. gods. And then you have, I mean, and, and that's essentially what you have right in the, in the ancient near East or really the whole ancient world, you have polytheism is the dominant uh, religion there. And so you, yeah. so you have that and you only have this real, there's only really one monotheistic religion in the ancient world. And that is the Hebrews. And then, so it's a way of making them them special. And it's just it was a very interesting concept. It really got my yeah. and then you talked about it in the last show as well. You know, it, it it's very fascinating in a way. Yeah, me too. And you know, like I say, as a you know, I'm I've come from a you know, standard evangelical background and this sure. is the kind of stuff that's scary to evangelicals because, you know, it it's you know, it, it challenges you to think outside the box. And, and, and not just evangelicals either. I think too, you more liberal mainline denominations aren't going to touch yeah. this stuff with a 10 foot pole either. Well, you know, to, to them, they just consider it myth, you sure. know, that, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's the mythological residue of pagans, right. Or whatever that, that the Jews evolved and stole from other religions and meshed it into their own. That's, that's the dominant liberal theory of the evolution of religion. And <laughs> right. in, in fact, particularly it's interesting because the liberal scholarships scholarship, this is the thing that, that struck me about this is this very notion that we're talking about here, the watchers, the, um, uh, the territorial authorities, the spiritual authorities and stuff, the gods, the Elohim. This is something that conservative scholars brushed under the rug. I, I know because I studied evangelical theology for many years. I love theology and no one ever talked about this stuff. But then when I, I, but I, I, I kind of got to the point in my life where I'm like, well, you know, I don't want to be afraid of what the liberals are saying. And I, I, I want to face it. If there's anything that they're saying is true, I want to face it and deal with it. And I realized, I learned that, oh my gosh, this is what a lot of liberal scholars are pointing up is, is this, this kind of material. But the reason why they, of course, quote is because they believe that this was, you know, and, you know, 
all the pagan religions in the ancient world did believe in a pantheon of gods. Um, they're all different versions of it, right? But the, the idea is the same, the same as the divine council. And so they think that, you know, uh, Jews just came along and picked up that religion and just ended up distorting it and changing it into their, their God is God over all those gods, this kind of thing. And that's very, very popular in the um, uh, critical scholarship but see, there's, there's a way in between those both two extremes because I, I came to believe that I think the evangelical scholarship was just as dishonest with me um, for hiding this stuff because yeah. what happens is, well, then when people finally do find out the truth, they're gonna, a lot of them are going to lose their faith because you know they haven't been taught to think critically about these issues and realize, well, what's the third way? What's, what's, the under, you know, what's a way to understand this where you don't have to necessarily conclude that, oh, therefore they ripped it off of pagan religions? Maybe there's a third way of understanding that is, is, is more um, uh, unifying. You know? And that's what, I, that's what I feel Dr. Heiser's work does you know, as a confessing scholar. You know, he... Mm. You know, he supports it, but he's not afraid to deal with these strange things. And, and that's what, in fact, honestly, that's why I liked him, because all these strange anomalies have built up over the years in my study of the Bible. And I would just sort of say, well, I don't understand that. It's weird. And, you know, it doesn't mean you have to uh, throw away the Bible, because there's always going to be things you don't understand. But his work helped to bring all those to light and in a way that makes sense and in a very sensible way. So, so that's what sort of got me going and made me as a fictional dramatist, it, it gave me the inspiration. I want to tell these stories to the world because I know a lot of Christians don't like theology or, you know, they're, they're, whatever, they're bored by it, they, they can't get into it, uh, whatever. So I wanted to take that theology and, and you know, and sort of na- create a narrative that can, that people can, a fictional narrative that can be entertaining, but also communicate for those who want to sure. know more. And that's what I feel Chronicles of Nephilim did. But that's where I also brought in this notion of the watchers and, and of the, the territorial authorities and how it operated or the pagan nations being ruled over by these gods. And, you know, even in the Bible, the, um, the, the term for the heavenly host, the stars, is interchangeable with gods. So it's kind of, they saw the terms as, as interchangeable. So, yeah, yeah. So, so this is this, this, the same discovery that like you, for me as well, it's sort of like, wow, this is fascinating. I haven't learned it before, but I also felt a little bit betrayed by the, um, uh, confessing scholarship because of this. And, and I find myself somewhere in between the two extremes, the people who are trying to hide it or people who are twisting it and spinning it to make it you know, just discredit the Bible. They, they both have their agendas and, and I find myself in between. And so sure. therefore I can, as a, you know, as a believing Christian, I can, I can see the book of first Enoch, which this, you know, the book of Enoch is having a resurgence of interest in, in the Christian community, which I think is a good thing. Oh yeah. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of Christians. And you know, again, you're going to have the extreme that people are saying, this should be scripture and the Christians were wrong and keeping it out of the Bible, you know, but yeah. well, then you have the other side was like, no, it's heresy. And that's why they kept it out. So don't even read it. And of course the truth is not either of those extremes because the reality is that, you know, the new Testament itself quoted from Enoch and drew from I, drew ideas that are in first of first Enoch that are not anywhere else in the Old Testament. So if you have the New Testament authors drawing from texts like First Enoch, which is very relevant to this Watcher scenario, then then who are we to deny the value, the usefulness or value of that text? You don't have to conclude it's canon. You just have to realize, but it's still useful and helpful because the Bible quotes from it. So there's certainly some good in there, right? And 
you know, this was sort of the, the, this is the foundation that, that not only launched the Chronicles of the Nephilim, but when I got to the end of that series, you know, I realized that there were more stories to be told, but, um, it didn't come about natural. It didn't come about naturally. Like I didn't say, okay, now I want to do Chronicles of Watchers. What happened was, well, before you get to that, I just oh, want yeah. to say real quick that like you talk about the third way, but let me say this about that, about what Dr. Heiser is doing is that it, it, what he's really doing is like the original way because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because all he's simply doing is saying, this is what the Jews believed. Amen. This is, this is what they believed in the context of the ancient Near East. And he's not putting any kind of denominational dogma upon any of this stuff. He's just saying, we're going back to the roots and this is what... This is what these people thought. This is what they believed. This is what their language tells us. And that's where I think we have the new resurgence is there is a resurgence, I think, within the Christian community of a return, an attempt to return to the original ancient context, Near Eastern context of the Bible, to read it through the eyes of the ancient rather than the eyes of the modern. I think this is a good thing. Um, and, I would agree, yeah. And quite frankly, th- that's what I think was the weakness that I discovered of evangelicalism is that there's a lot of evangelical theology that is surprisingly more driven by a modernist worldview without even real. They don't even realize it. They think they're no, no, we're not, mo- you know, we're not secular. We're not like secular man, but they don't realize that a lot of the ways they approach the Bible, like with the hyperliteralism, everything has to be absolutely uh, historically and scientifically accurate, or it's not God's word. They don't realize that that actual approach is itself a modernist notion that is not in the ancient text. And it's not the way that the ancient Hebrews looked at things. So you're right. You're very right. It is a return, actually, an attempt to, you know, because we can never know fully what it's like to be back then. But as we do the research, we find out well, what is the original context of the original writers and readers? Not what we, you know, how we look at, it. well, what, you know, if we read a figurative text, like, you know, I mean, anything, you know, like uh, Book of Revelations, the classic one, right? You know, uh, the grasshoppers with human heads and stuff like that. We, we think, well, what can it mean to us? Well, maybe they're cobra helicopters or, you know, all these sure. silly, or, or, or the, the other extreme is just that, no, it's literally, they're literally, because if you don't read the Bible literally, then you're not, uh, you don't believe the Bible. It's like, no, no, it's, it's not literal. It's clearly symbolic. And if you understand the symbols of the ancient world, you'll understand the meaning a lot better than just coming at it from our modern Western and qu- quite frankly, American viewpoint. Many, many I think times. a good case in point of that, Brian, is the, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but the entire uh, creation versus evolution debate as, yes. as, it's, as it's kind of been given as an example to us last year or two years ago by the Ken Ham versus Bill Nye, the science guy stuff, yeah. you know, it, essentially evolution. Okay. Darwinian evolution is a modern concept, mm-hmm. but at the same, we know this, but at the same time, young earth creationism, as it was deduced by Archbishop Usher in the 17th century, yes. that's also a modern concept. Yes. And that's the delusion that evangelicals don't realize. They think, no, we're pitting the Bible against, uh, you know, modern secular yeah. man's philosophies, but they don't realize, no, no, yours comes from the, the same modernist reaction to that viewpoint. So it assumes the same standards and that's completely unbiblical. Absolutely. Right. And fact, some of that is also translation as well. Like the word for day, the Hebrews, that that concept was vastly different 
uh, from just we're just taking the first book of Genesis as an example. Sure. I mean, that concept was vastly different to the ancient Hebrews as it was going to be to the Puritans in the 17th century. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, to, to be quite frankly, I, I had actually been um, a young earth creationist many years ago. I studied that stuff and, and fought on it. I, and I'm no longer, in fact, you know, now that I've studied the, the genre of creation, liter- ancient creation literature and studied the meanings and, and, well, mostly the genre of creation literature, because that's what Genesis is. It's a genre. And it uses a lot of common tropes and memes that they used back then. And the, what the purpose of, of, of writing creation stories was for is not to write a physics textbook, which is what the modern mind assumes. And even, right. by the way, good, well-intentioned Christians who, who deny, who, don't, who aren't even young earth creationists, they too think, well, but still, it supports an old earth paradigm and, and it's still scientifically accurate. They're all wrong because it has nothing to do with science in its ancient Near Eastern cre- creation context, it, it has nothing to, to do with science at all. And so that actually should free evangelicals, to be quite frank, that freed me from a lot of, of you know, cognitive dissonance in terms of you know, problems with the young earth creationist view and such. But it also, even with evolution, to be quite frank, it, it doesn't matter if evolution is true or not because I don't think the text has anything to do with it. I think the text has has more to do with the theological messaging, as as you know, Heiser would would say, the yeah. theological messaging. Now, well, well I think know. both groups. I think both groups. I think science and this kind of extreme creationist point of view. They want us to either choose one side or the other. Yes. And the yes. truth is, it's almost like my good friend Doctor Future said, uh, it's like choosing sides in Operation Barbarossa. You know, they they want you to choose either the Nazis or the Soviets. And it's like, but in the, but the truth is there's an in-between area here. Yes. A vast in-between area here. Exactly. And by the way, yeah. uh, And I'm at the point where it's like, you know, you have to be honest and admit that there are many different uh, approaches and there's a lot to learn from each of them. Absolutely. So absolutely. anyway, but this is a very freeing thing because I think that here, you know, we're getting off on a tangent, but I think it is relevant because when you, when you, Seek to to interpret the Bible through the ancient mindset. You suddenly have to slough off a lot of these modernist constructs, like the hyperliteralism that I'm talking about, that will actually damage your faith. Because if you are investigative of truth and seek to know, you know, facts, whether it's science or whatever, or history or what have you, you're going to you're ultimately the hyperliteralist approach to the Bible cannot be maintained. So you're going to either have to jettison the faith, you know, give up your faith, or you're going to have to adapt and, and realize, well, either sides of extremes are wrong. And I think that this happens with a lot of issues. The creation evolution is one issue. I do think uh, end times is another issue. I, I think that, that uh, and even history, how, how, what, what is history writing like, you know? And, and is the Bible supposed to be a literal, exact photographic, you know, documentary reproduction of exactly every single detail that actually happened. It's like, that's not how they wrote history. So, you know, knowing these things is what helps us, I think, also deal with the skepticism of the modern age that is crushing many Christians, which is why these Christians go to college, young Christians go to college, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, they're indoctrinated. But nonetheless, what they've been taught is not really sufficient because when they get to college and they learn some other facts, Yes, they're being spun, twisted, and manipulated and indoctrinated, but nonetheless, there's still enough 
facts to be able to do that, to crush their faith. And it doesn't have to be yeah. that way. And, and so my own personal story, I mean, you know, when I, when I was a teenager, you know, Hey, I, I did lose my faith and I got it back again at a certain point, but it's like, you know, I had to wrestle through all these kind of things. Just what, just what you just said. I mean, I had to wrestle through, you know, is this myth? Is it real? What, what is it? You know, those are the questions I had to ask myself. So I, I totally hear what you're saying about the choice, about what the choice has kind of been given to people. Like, you know, when you have this dogma over here and this dogma on the, on this side, it's yeah. like you, you're forced to, when you're forced to choose between one, well, you eventually you just say, well, I don't care about either. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think this movement of, you know, seeking to understand the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible is what opens up this doorway of, you know, really a lot of powerful poetry, beautiful imagination in the Bible. And this is not a negative thing as in like, oh, you know, the Bible's a bunch of myth and it's just making stuff. No, no. It's a way of communicating that's different from ours. Just like you understand when you get into another culture and realize, oh, the way they say things and communicate is different than ours. Well, that's how it is with them too. And so this, and this watcher paradigm, you know, to get back to that is, is again, you know, uh, it, I, I think that people who are monotheistic don't like it because it, it's, you know, it starts to sound like, wait a minute, you're saying there's other gods and there's all these other beings. And I thought there's just one God and that's all that really matters. And like, no, you know, there are, there are angels. There's a lot of angels in the Bible. And you, you know, as a Christian, I would just sort of say, yeah, there's angels in the Bible, but I wouldn't really, I didn't really realize how really intimately they are involved in this plan of God. And, and so the, <coughs> okay. So, that's that's sort of the scenario, the you know the, the watcher gods behind the nations, all this kind of stuff. And you know, I actually was done with Chronicles of the Nephilim series, and I series, and I I I met with uh, a good friend of mine, Charlie Wen, at my church, and we got to know each other. He's liking my series, and he's you know we were thinking about we'd like to work on something together. And it turns out Charlie uh, was the creator of the visual development department at Marvel Studios, mm. so he was the original guy who who kind of developed that whole department for the visual. So basically he developed the look of all the characters, you know, whether it's Thor, Captain America, the Avengers, all those guys, Iron Man, Ant-Man. He left sometime around Ant-Man, but he was involved in crafting the visual imagery for those movies. And so he's an artist, but he's also a great storyteller. And, and, and he said, you know what, Brian, he goes, I've been always wanting to um, tell the, 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 as a Christian, the, 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 the story of the first emperor of China because that's his background and his heritage and, and he's like but because there's some spiritual connections that I've learned and, and he told me about them he said well you know the first emperor of China was around 200 BC and before this time period China was what they call the warring states so you know like a thousand years they had I don't know five or seven different states that had been warring forever and this first uh, emperor basically was the first guy to bring universal peace under his rule. And this was the guy that built the Great Wall of China, right? So a, a lot of people don't realize that they know about this guy from documentaries. He's the guy that built, that created those terracotta warriors, those thousands that they found in the ground in China, you know? Um, this was a the really key guy in history. Well, it, it so happens that he was also a tyrant. And the Chinese people acknowledge this, you know. Um, but he was a tyrant, but he was a fascinating tyrant for storytelling purposes. And, uh, but, but he said, you know, at this time period was right around the time period where the dragon 
dragon had been used as a symbol occasionally for different emperors and stuff, but it became a ubiquitous symbol for China after this first emperor. And, it, and of course, you know, as, as Christians, we're like, the dragon, the serpent goes back to the garden. That has some very negative connections with us, right? So, and he also said, um, and there's something else too. He goes, before this guy, he kind of brought in a more animistic worship because before him in ancient China, they actually worshiped a single God. And, and they had, and not only that, but they worshiped him without images. They did not have any images of, of God. Now, this is thousands of years before Christ, during the time before the Old Testament even, right? And why this is so fast, uh, powerfully interesting is because they had no connection in the East with the Bible or anything like that. And all throughout history, we know that every pagan nation worshiped multiple gods and they worshiped them with images. The only nation that didn't was Israel, right? So it turns out that the Chinese people, the Chinese Christians now actually claim that, that they came from the Tower of Babel and that's spreading and they, you know, they, their understanding of God was less corrupted than elsewhere. So they still worship one God without images. Very fascinating. Uh, you know, and, and, and when he said this to me, I'm like, there's, that's an interesting spiritual thing, connection going on there as a Christian. I find that fascinating. Let's look into it. And, you know, you know, we've just found this amazing story and, and, but there's more to it than that. I said, well, you know, it just so happens I have read some books on my own because I just always have interest in all kinds of weird spiritual things. And I said, sure. I read this book about, um, about Genesis in the Chinese, the ancient Chinese language. Well, it's still this way, but it's pictorial. So they're like little mini pictures in a way. And, um, if you look into the past, you'll find that their ancient words, some of them show residue or influence of the book of Genesis thousands of years before the book of Genesis ever got there. So, for instance, they have words like the word ship is a, a boat with eight people on it. And that eight people is Noah, you know, Noah's Ark carried eight people, right? Um, there's words like the, the word for tower. Is a, is a word, is a picture of a story that's very similar to the Tower of Babel. You know, the word for tempter is like, you know, two, two trees in a garden with a snake, you know? So there's all these fascinating things that reflect the book of Genesis before they ever had connection with it, which means, again, yeah, they probably came from Babel and they brought with these truths and they embedded them within their language. So we were up and running because we thought, this is really fascinating, cool. We're not going to push the spiritual angle, but it might, it might come into to relevance for us. And as we did the research, we found, I, that's when I realized at that point, this is just a standalone story about the first emperor of China. And we realized, wow, you know what? This has a connection to the watcher paradigm. And this is a new series because we've got some other stories we, we can tell where we deal with these watchers over the nations and, and they don't have to necessarily be biblical nations, right? But there was still a connection to that biblical past that was really fascinating. And well, let me ask you, Brian, the, real quick. Yeah, what's the, the the what is the accepted version of the of the origin of the people in China? Do they believe is is it? I think it's is it believed that they that they that they came about independently of the rest of the world? It, was there influence? Is there any trace of like that of other kind of influence from the Near East like that? That's a good question. I I honestly don't know that. 
um, I just know uh, the the one side of people who are who would claim um, that they came from the Tower of Babel. Uh, but other than that, I don't know. Yeah, this is the. Uh, That's a good question. I think it's like the Wong, like the is it Shi Shi Wang Di, is the is the um, uh, the the uh, I guess the over god in in their religion. Uh, no, it's Shang Di. Shang Di. Yes. the name for it. Now, so here's the thing: is that I do know a little bit about their previous religious beliefs. This was right around the time period where Taoism and Confucianism. There was a lot of different philosophies that were vying for control. And right. with the, when the first emperor came into power, he sort of crushed the other ones. Taoism actually, and Buddhism, and and. Uh, um, uh, and he instituted legalism, which was w- really more of like a legalistic, fascistic sort of uh, control. But it did unify the language. It unified the weights and measures. So it, it, you know, it brought some good things, but it also was, was very oppressive. But the point of this is, is before that, they did have this notion. This is what's interesting. They had a notion of the lesser deities, they call them. And it's very, very much like the divine council. Shangdi was the superior true god. Hmm. And these lesser deities, but see, were were around him. But then, with the the coming of the first emperor, he kind of eliminated the worship of Shangdi, and it just became these these lesser deities. You know, so they were gods of the you know gods of the mountains, gods of the trees, and stuff like that. I you know I I I, I wouldn't know their names like you could like you could do Greek religion, right? They they have names too, but they're just m- multiples, many many different gods and deities. But they became sort of the dominant one. So in other words, Shangdi worship was suppressed and and taken out of the way, and um and this is very interesting, connected to the dragon, connected to the serpent, um and so Charlie and I said, you know, we want to tell a story that's fat. We you know, in a way, we're kind of multicultural. We're interested in all the cultures, but. We want to make one that maybe both East and West could be interested in because we're we're from the mo- we you know we're from the movie culture so right. we're always thinking in those terms and so we realized well what was what, or we said what was going on at this time in the West maybe we can have someone from the West come over you know and like a Marco Polo or something right and this was the time when the Greek Seleucid Kingdom was over Mesopotamia and the Levant and Israel was under them as well so this is you know this is a time period after the Jews came back out of Babylon, out of exile, back into the land. So they were already gone from Babylon. But Babylon was still there. It was just a sort of like a, uh, like Detroit, you know? <laughs> it's just, there wasn't much left, but it was there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and the king, and uh, this is Antiochus the Great was was the king of that time. And, um, and this is also a, a little bit of background. Like you had Alexander the Great who conquered the Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. And then the, after he dies from a dysentery or whatever it was that he died of at 32 years old, the, 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 his generals take over. Yep. And one of the generals was uh, Seleucus and that's the, that's the empire that you see in the book. And that's one of his descendants in the, in the book. Exactly. And yeah. the main power structures were Ptolemies, which is Egypt and such. By that time, there were four of them at first, the Dedekoi, I think it's called. And, yep. and, uh, but it ultimately came down to the Seleucids and the Ptolemies at this time period. So, uh, and the Seleucids had the, um, yeah, the Levant and the Mesopotamia and all that. So, and he's overextending his kingdom at that time period, way into Parthia. And, but still at this point, they didn't, nobody really had much, nobody really had connection with, China. Mm-hmm. It was still an undiscovered world and they didn't have any connection. However, in my research I found that they have recently discovered 
oracle bones in China that indicate they did actually have contact with Cyrus the Great. Okay. Of Babylon, the, the Medo-Persian, you know, and this was the guy that was over Daniel, or, or Daniel prophesied that Cyrus would, you know, right? And so, you know, I don't know, within 100 years after Daniel, Cyrus uh, is the one that declares, you know, you can go back to your land. So, so it's interesting that you've got this whole thing going on with Daniel, and we know that Daniel influenced the Babylonian Magi, right? Because it was the Magi that were looking for Messiah in the time of Christ. So somehow he influenced this school of thinking that lasted for centuries. And so, so the premise of our story is like, well, what if, and this is where we added some fiction. We, we wanted it to based on, we wanted it to be all based on historical facts, but we had our own fictional character and we have a, basically a fallen, not fallen, but a, a, a dishonored warrior who's a Greek warrior who is sent into the Far East because they because the, the king, Antiochus the Great, his kingdom's overextended, he's losing his power, and he wants he he's heard that there's there's a magical animal of power in the east that that might give him absolute power over his kingdom, a dragon. So he sends this warrior, this this dishonored, disgraced warrior to go find that dragon, redeem himself, right, and bring him back. And of course, what he finds is not what he anticipated, because the dragons that that the West think of, you know, as these sort of dinosaurs that breathe fire type of thing, uh, it's not at all what it's like in the East. And not only that, but there's something much more sinister behind the serpent, the dragon, than what they realize. And and that's that was sort of became the premise of our story that launched us uh, in, into um, into ultimately what became the Dragon King, which is the first novel of the Chronicles of the Watchers. Luke, uh, did you uh, you've studied a little bit of like Eastern religion stuff, <clears throat> such like that? Uh, yeah. Do you know anything about some of this that uh, Brian's talking about? It's it's been a while, but but yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been to, to be totally honest. I've been over here Facebooking quite a bit, but I, I've been picking up some little things here and there. Well, you know what's interesting for us is um, we wanted to we wanted this to be a story that was East meets West, and um, the clash of kingdoms. But of course, from our perspective, uh, it's not East or West. Neither of them are more superior than the other. They both have good things and they both have bad things. But there's one kingdom that's higher than both of those, and that's sort of uh, one of the drives of our storyline. So, so this is the kind of story that. Uh, all people will really appreciate um, because, you know, you've got this Greek guy from the Western kingdom, a very Western mindset coming into the East. And of course there are some good things that he learns from them. And then there are some things that a value that he gives to them. And through his eyes is how we get introduced into this, 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 you know, exotic unknown kingdom type of thing. And he falls in love with a concubine of the emperors and that causes trouble. And there's something else I didn't tell you that known from history is that this emperor was searching for the elixir of immortality, which is really fascinating in and of itself because his, his alchemists had been working. He, he almost bankrupted his treasury ser- searching for the elixir of immortality, see, um, as well as building the, the, the Great Wall of China, which was also very uh, oppressive because he used slave labor to build it. He forced his people to build it. Right, and so he's guy- the one that's known as the, for the uh, terracotta army. Yes, the very exactly. Famous yeah. terracotta army that you see. Exactly, in the, and uh, his name was Qin Shi Huangdi. You might uh, they might simplify it down to Huangdi, 
Um, but uh, so this guy's fascinating because he's got his alchemist, and this is in a time period where they didn't know what a lot of these substances did. So they tested them, and they were at that time they came to believe that ingesting s- tiny amounts of mercury and arsenic and some others actually could give you longevity of life. And what they didn't realize is that it makes you go insane. Yeah. It's not so, good for you. And this is really what was happening. And, and this really happened in history. And so he went insane at the end, last 10 years of his life. He did some crazy things. And we, we include all that stuff in, in our story. And uh, like I said, we, we kind of, you know, we embellish it a little bit. Kind of like a, if you ever watched a, um, you know, an Asian war film or something where they kind of has have heightened reality. It's not. It's 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 basically historical fact, but they also add a little bit of fantasy element in it. You know, the, to heighten the reality, so to speak. So we did. We wanted to do that in this story as well. So reading this, you you do learn about some very fascinating historical things about Babylon and the West and and uh, Mesopotamia at that time period, but also about China and this this first emperor and what it was really like in that kingdom. And, um, so yeah, that was, that was sort of the, the goal of it. But in the meantime, this watcher paradigm comes in, in that, you know, the dragon ends up basically being, uh, the, 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 one of the gods that they worship. Right. And, um, and that's where, where it comes in as sort of the guiding force. Well, I'm going to ask you, Brian, about that. And is there anything that you saw in your studies about the Chinese religion, that in 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 history and religion that would show you that uh, that the possibility that that they were under these other kind of powers just like the, the ancient Near East of like you mentioned the Prince of Persia earlier yes. you do put Marduk in the book which was a very interesting little yeah. scene there and is there anything that you see uh, that would indicate that that this culture that is isolated from the rest of the world that is on the other side of the, of the known world at that time would have been under those influences? Um, well, mostly just in looking at their religious uh, structure of the the lesser gods, you know. And um, it's funny because so few people knew so little about China until later years. And mostly it was missionaries right. who actually did the pioneering work and the work on explaining a lot of their, their animistic pagan beliefs and stuff. And so you can find a lot of these books online, PDF, uh, you know, because they're more like in the 1800s and such where they explain a lot of the ancient religions and stuff. And that's where I, reading that was where I discovered their their concept was very much like the Divine Council, their own version of the Divine Council. And and uh, so it was very common in that sense. Uh, but in terms of, um, in terms of the battling war uh, behind the nations, uh, really all ancient cultures had that general worldview. They, they generally believed that the, the earthly powers, whatever happens on the earth, is rooted in the stars. So yeah, they had a notion of astrological uh, determinism, the stars having control over the destinies of mankind. But here's the interesting thing a lot of people don't know is all these ancient cultures, including China, also had this notion of this interchangeability of the stars as deities. Or, you know, it, it's sort of like this notion of, yeah, they're stars, but they're gods. And that's why you get this concept of the heavenly host and such. And that is very prevalent in the religious views. Um, but in terms of literal stories of, of that, you know, it, you would just have to explore more about their myths and such, which I, you know, I wasn't able to do, uh, 
an extensive sure. research on that. It was more on some of the ancient setup because then I imported, then I take the watcher paradigm from the Bible and I basically use that as my grid. One interesting thing that I believe that has happened recently in China has been, you know, the idea of the Supreme God and a lot of missionaries, I think in the last 200 years have been able to use that as a way of equating that with the, with the Christian God too. Yes. And that's, that's why they use the Chinese use the name Shangdi when they sort of like when we use the word God, it's sort of a generic reference, right? I mean, everyone says God, but what do you mean by God? But it's still, yeah, the Supreme creator being, and, and then you have to define who he is. Well, for the Chinese, that word would be Shangdi. And so, um, uh, the you know so I would say the equivalent is Shangdi could be Yahweh you know uh, as as they understood him in a in a albeit a um, you know sort of a distorted view because they didn't have the purity of revelation that the Jews had but uh, nevertheless it, it you know it's definitely it's definitely a part of that but yeah the modern day Christians one of the things that they they've been you know trying to address in the Chinese community is a lot of Chinese people you know, react against Christianity. Oh, that's a Western religion, right? That's a Western religion. Yeah. And they're trying to show them, no, no, it's not. Look at, it's not Western at all. It's actually, we worshiped a single God without images, with border sacrifices, just like in the Bible. So we're before Christianity, you know? And so they're trying to show that, no, no, it's really not. It's rooted in a more, you know, it's a, in a creation uh, paradigm that, that, um, uh, that that Christ does fulfill, you know. There's a similarity the there, yeah. Yes, a similarity. So, and I, I actually, I believe that that actually could be the case, you know. And um, so, yeah, but it is it is one of those mysterious countries that there's not a lot, you know. It, it's hard to find information on it. It's particularly in the spiritual spiritual side of things. Yeah. Now, I'm talking about the ancient, you know. Obviously, now there's a lot on Taoism and and all that kind of stuff. But in terms sure. of their ancient mythologies and stuff like that. It's, it, it's, there's not a lot out there. So you really have to work hard. And I believe as far as the uh, dynasty, the first emperor of China, and once he dies, uh, I think there's only one more emperor that's in that dynasty. And then pretty much that dynasty falls. Yes. And it doesn't like his dynasty actually is for all the good that it did. As far as uniting the country, then it actually lasts very long. No, no, it didn't. Yeah. Then you have all these other famous Chinese dynasties after him. And, you know, I think that's part of the fruit of his corruption was, you know, he really didn't prepare well. And, you know, he basically had several sons and, you know, one son was, um, one son was actually more along the lines of Confucian, which he hated. The other son, and, and, and that son was actually uh, a better, uh, a, more of a, a better leader. But the other son, which was considered more weak, he actually was schooled in, in the legalism, which is more of a legal philosophy, you know, that was what the emperor wanted. And so that was the son that ended up actually, um, being, you know, becoming the next emperor. And, uh, the, the, the other son was forced to commit suicide. So there's a lot of politics going on in there that I actually bring into the novel as well. And, um, it's really fascinating, but you know, it's funny. Here's the funny thing, you know, cultures all over the world, it's, they're all the same. Mankind is the, has the same human nature. Yeah. We may have some cultural trappings that are different, but at the end of the day, everyone's jockeying for power, wanting to kill their enemies, you know, uh, and, and everyone's using politics to better their own advancements, you know, and so there's a lot of similarities. I think that's why something like Shakespeare can be 
portrayed in many different settings in many different time periods and still makes sense to everybody. Yeah. And you yeah. know, the very notion of emperors, you know, it's like, right. We, we bring that up in the novel because the emperor of the West, he considered, you know, their, their word, their Greek word was King, but it was the same thing notion. It was an emperor. <clears throat> and so Antiochus, the great was, you know, the emperor of the West. And they both thought that they were emperor of the world, you know, particularly in China, you know, the word for emperor was, uh, all under heaven. So it's like, their notion was, well, China is the center of the, and, and this is true. You know, they believe that China was the center of the world, just like, uh, you know, the Greeks and the Mesopotamians thought they sure. they were the center of the universe or the, or the world. And so it's, it, it's sort of, everyone thinks they're the emperor of all the world, but then what happens when, when these two clash, you know, and come in, come into contact and realize they're not, you know, and, and the search for power, and uh, and eternal life, immortality, meaning, transcendence. This is all wrapped up in all this. It's not just about politics. It's about man seeking for transcendence and and trying to find the absolute, you know, and trying to find uh, transcendence, you know. And you can't find it in this world, you know. The, and the, and 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 you're not going to find it. You're not going to find eternal life in this world. And you're not going to find it in these systems of of multiple deities, but only in the one God. You know. So that's kind of the heart of of what's going on in the story. You can't find it in legalism, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that that term legalism, which is you know to Christians uh, that's as an obviously negative connotation as it is. Um, uh, but, and I, and I think that it pretty, you know, it's, it's fair enough to, to say that, yeah, it has a similar negative because what it was, was it was a, using law as a weapon or a fascistically basically to control people. And so even though the law can be a good thing and it can be unifying and, and such, uh, in this context, basically this emperor <clears throat> at what point got so angry um, and this is relevant for our day too, isn't it? He got so angry that, that all these Confucian, the, the scholars of the land were always referring to the ancient wisdom, whether it's Confucius or what have you, you know, they're always quoting all these other guys from the past. And this emperor was like, he got so angry that that would get in the way of him because, you know, all these different varying viewpoints and they're all in disagreement with him. So he ended up burning all the books that he could find of anything from the past. So isn't it interesting? The same kind of principle so that we could start anew and only have legalistic texts and such. Well, obviously they were, they would, they didn't get all of them because Confucius survived and such. But, uh, at the time that was his, his approach was we've got to stop this, all this rabble history, historical, you know, facts and, uh, you know, th whatever, you know, the, 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 the facts of history and philosophy from the past, all the ancient wisdom, right? That's all just gobbledygook. Forget it. And I mean, <laughs> right. isn't that what's happening today, right? It's listen, reject all this ancient religion. It's all superstition. Let's just have this secular new world order and, you know, and, and, you know, let's all just be a socialist utopian paradise, which completely ignores history totally, you know? Uh, yeah, I agree. And it surprises me really for as much as, uh, as, you know, you study the ancient world, you study ancient history. It really surprises me that we have as much as we do with all the the burn the burnings of the libraries, and then just rulers like him that would purge these texts and burn them. You know, you you had the same thing happen in the West as well. Yeah, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the Magi too because that was a really fascinating book, uh, part of the book, and. 
you know, I, I, it was, they were, they also were kind of the, uh, they were the wise sages, but also kind of the comedy relief as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, th- th- I found this fascinating because you think about, you know, you hear about the Magi, you hear, like you said before, uh, you, you, the whole thing about the Christmas story about going to see Jesus in the manger and, yeah. and all these kind of things, but you don't really think about who the, you know, the most often said the wise men, you don't really think about who the Magi were, yeah. And what their importance was. But then also this connection that you put to Daniel, I found very interesting as well. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't arbitrary. I mean, this is based on research. I'm like, well, look, there's a connection going on here. Yeah, there's a fictional element to the storyline, of course. But it, it's all based on stuff that's basically real. And that is at the, in 200 B.C., there were still magi there because by the time of, they were still there by the time of Christ. And they had been taught by Daniel. And even though they were still probably basically pagan, Daniel affected them, and they were looking for Messiah, right? And so, <coughs> excuse me, they were looking for the emperor to come from heaven, and 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 so I made one of the characters be the best friend. Uh, one of the characters is uh, a, a magus, uh, one of the magi from Babylon, who goes with the hero on his journey into the far east. And, you know, and the Magi, they, they were alchemists. They, they, believe, they used astrology and alchemy. And, of course, that's why, because of their astrology, was why they were looking for Messiah and they were following the star and all this stuff. And I, I know a lot of Christians don't, don't want to link any astrology to Christianity, but the fact is, is they were using a lot of astrological phenomenon to describe the coming of Messiah at that time period. And even the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, the description of the dragon and the woman and stuff, it, it all matches astrological phenomenon. But nevertheless, um, you know, so they've got this influence on them. And so I thought, well, wow, that, that, that's a way that sort of brings in the, um, you know, the, the biblical Jewish notion at that time, which I f- thought would be a fascinating spiritual, spiritual thing. So what if this Magus, you know, had some real influence from Daniel but it also was still a Babylonian with all of his, you know, alchemical teaching and all that kind of stuff. And, and that became, um, like you said, not only the, <coughs> excuse me, not only the, um, you know, comic relief and such, but also it was a way for me to show the, the religions and the sciences of the East and West were also similar yet different in many different ways. They all had, they all sought alchemy. They all sought elixir of eternal of, of immortality in the west it was called the philosopher's stone you know so i find it fascinating how across all cultures and they don't have to have had connection with each other to to do this because i think it's it's part of who we are as as humans created in the image of god our search for transcendence you know what i mean right. and so these were the these were some of the factors that helped bring in sort of magic as science you know uh, in other words yeah they call it magic but I sort of show that there's a scientific aspect to a lot of the magic that they were engaging in. Yeah. It's just fascinating that there could have been that link between them and, and, yeah. and Daniel as well. I mean, I found yeah. that, that, that very interesting. Is there anything that uh, historical that, that links the two? Um, <clears throat> what do you mean? Links what to? Well, Daniel and the Magi. Oh, Daniel Magi. Oh, oh yeah. Well, well, just the fact that he he, the Magi was the school that he taught in when he was in Babylon. Okay. He he when he became the I forgot the, his title, but 
what was it, Satrapy or something? Yeah. And he became the head over, it was the school of the wise men, which is the Magi. Now, that included astrology, it included all of them. You know, it was like a big, broad school. And, and Magi is the term that we use for one of those. Like there were astrologers, alchemists, and stuff. And Magi were just the term that we now uses wise men so they were that you know there's there's not a lot on the magi that we can find but the little that we can find is they were kind of um you know they had experience in a little bit of all the arts um the arts of you know like i said astronomy alchemy all that kind of stuff so um it yeah so it's actually biblical that that he had influence on them and since the magi were looking for the christ it lasted all the way to the first century. So it's completely consistent with that. And not only that, but I also found a legend um, that when the Jews went into exile, you know, we have the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That was the classic uh, movie of all history. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and it's kind of rooted in, in some legends, right? Well, I found out that there's more to it than that. I don't have the Ark in this, but there were elements in the Ark of the Covenant that there are legends that they ended up in Babylon. So okay. I'm, that's what I'm going <laughs> to say. It's, it's not in of, Ethiopia, like Graham, Graham Hancock says. N- no, they're, they're, they, that's the Ark, but the contents of the Ark. Oh, the contents. There's, there's actually pseudepigrapha. Like, I think it's the Book of Jubilees. I can't remember, but it's some of the pseudepigrapha. And these are legends, you know. I Honestly, God only knows. But I, my point is, is as a fictional writer, I like to have it as much based on possible fact as possible, which means, hey, if there's a legend, maybe there's truth to it, right? Well, the, the fact was is that they thought that, that the Ark was hidden by Jeremiah in a cave or something, so it never went to Babylon. And then whatever the history is from there, that's that. But they actually took the implements inside to Babylon, which is the Staff of Aaron and the manna in the jar, see? So uh, mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to say, that that comes into play as well. So we kind of have a little Raiders of the Lost Ark edge to this story. So sometimes, like, we're, you know, if we try to sell the, the screen rights to make the movie, which we would like to do, um, it, we could pitch it as uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in China, you know? <laughs> and, and having read it, because uh, I didn't get a chance to read the other, the Nephilim chronicles but i i read i did read this book and having read it it it, it moves very much like a movie it really yeah. does it, it's very well paced it, 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 i really i really enjoyed uh, this some of the sections in it, it was really exciting uh i want to ask you where do you want to take this new series uh what time periods are we looking at going to and yeah. also it, is there any possibility of going kind of like into the future or more like a present day? Uh, with Chronicles of the Watchers, no. Um, probably not. Uh, I'm not sure yet. I'm open to other possibilities, but I actually may do a prequel and go and do Daniel in Babylon, you know, because of the Magi, right? Right. Um, I may do the sequel to this, may go right from there to the next period in history in the West, which was the Maccabees. And that's the story, the story of the Maccabees, and their uprising against the Greek kingdom is something that was very influential part of history, very important part of history that is not in the Bible, but it's in the intertestamental period. So it's one of those events that is fascinating. And um, I might do that or, you know, that brings it more back towards the biblical 
type of stories, but um, you know, we may even expand it to uh, some other nations. But it, it's still in its infancy right now. The Dragon King itself, just to, for the listeners to know, it's a standalone novel. You could read it, and you don't need to read anything else. It's you know, it, it, you don't have to be a series reader to appreciate it, um, because our goal is is to write every book like it's like you're watching a movie. So it would just be like watching an exciting movie. Um, so yeah, our goal we're not sure yet where we're going to expand to, but but the the, the worlds are oyster. I was going to ask you if you wanted, if you were going to uh, maybe tackle Alexander. Well, I'll take suggestions. So, <laughs> okay, I'll consider that. I think that'd be interesting considering he thought of himself as a demigod. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a good one, too. I mean, Absolutely. essentially thought of himself as a Nephilim, I guess you would say. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, conquering the world is a pretty significant story, you know? Right. So, yeah. So, I don't know. We're actually, um, um, I actually, right now, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm kind of writing two series because I'm actually now embarking on a new series. So th- um, it may be uh, some time before I get to the next novel in this one, but because I kind of got inspired to write another series called Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and uh, that one is going to be a whole new sort of again. It's going to have the Watcher paradigm, but um, but uh, it's the sequel to Chronicles of the Nephilim. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> is this going to be more of a present day or like a future kind of thing? No, actually it's not. It's going to be about the time period right after the book of Acts, uh, the time period that led up to the fall of the, of the temple in, in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed the temple oh, okay. and the city. And, and it's going to deal with the neuronic persecutions, the very first persecutions of Christianity, which will be a very much of a uh, foreshadowing of the kind of persecution that's starting up nowadays for us. But um, so and and it, that's the time period where the Apostle John was writing the Book of Revelation. So I've got all that stuff in there, and it's going to be truly unique. <laughs> do you, Do you see that there's a there there's a persecution starting up now? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there are more Christians being killed now than ever in history. Um, you know, and and they're being slaughtered by Muslims right now, unlike even more than than before, and and the persecution that's starting in America. I mean, I, thirty years ago, if you would have told me, oh, Christians are going to be sued and thrown in jail for for uh, just for believing in traditional marriage, I would have said you're crazy. You know, that could never get to that to be like that. You know, uh, whether or not that's a, some kind of a prophecy fulfillment, that's a different story. I, I'm not necessarily in that camp, but I definitely sure. think that uh, I definitely see persecution growing. And it's turning against Christianity because, you know, the fundamental left-wing multicultural, it's, it's all basically anti-Christ. It's, its goal is to wipe out Christianity. I think that's the, the spiritual truth behind the whole movement, you know, uh, that's going across the world, right? You know, um, uh, in terms of, you know, even the immigration crisis, you know, and what, what it's, you know, they don't care about the fact that they're raping women and murdering people. They, you know, they're, they're bringing in Muslim immigrants and it's spreading and it's just destroying everything. And, and they're valuing, they're valuing the, the, you know, the multicultural values are more important than what these people are doing to people as they're enslaving women, they're raping and murdering Christians and enslaving Christians. And it's just, it's just monstrous, you know? Yeah, what's um, going on in the Middle East? I mean, it, it, yeah. it is monstrous, and and it's it's not just the Christians though over there. I mean, the, yeah. the they're they're fighting other 
sects of Islam that they don't agree with. Absolutely. And, and, and of course I'm bringing it up because of the, the context of our discussion. I'm focusing yeah. on that, but I'm also focusing on it because it's by and large being ignored. I mean, it's being ignored by our administration. Only recently have they even admitted it, but they sh- shuffled it under the rug because they, yeah. they, they don't want to admit it, that it is specifically Christian genocide. They ultimately did admit it very late, but even then it's still shuffled under the, under the, the, the rug. And so um, I think that there's a deliberate uh, intent to hide the persecution against Christianity in Western in the Western view, which is why, you know, so you get 500 rapes in Cologne on New Year's Day and you find out that, you know, uh, the local governments and the state governments were trying to hide it so that people wouldn't know about it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, this we, is insane. We talked about that on this show. Uh, we have a guy over there uh, that actually he was on the last show with us that is lives in Germany. And the things that he says and the things that he tells us, I mean, it's it's. It, it is really almost like Twilight Zone kind of stuff. Yes. I mean, yes. It, it, Europe is in such a state of just social chaos right now. Uh, and a lot of it is because of this, uh, what's happening over there with, with, with not just the, the, the refugees. I mean, that's only one part of it. And a lot right. of it is the people that are already there. Yes. When, when you're in Brussels and you can't go, to a certain part of town because it's essentially become a Muslim ghetto. Yeah. That's a problem. And, and by, and there, and the media and the governments are trying, they still mock that as if it's not true that there are no, there are no, right. no zones, but they're, they're still denying it. And these are Western news media who are denying oppression. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is insane. The well, West, uh, the West was built on, you know, uncovering the oppression of others and freedom. And now it's covering up oppression and covering up the destruction of freedom in the name of multicultural, you know, whatever, embracing multiculturalism or something, you know? Yeah. And the way that they see it and the Europeans see it, because you're dealing with, in Europe, you're dealing with a culture that is predominantly, predominantly now not Christian. Yeah, they're they're they are very uh, very much a secular society, so they see the Muslims as a threat to that secular society. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's 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 really just insane the stuff that's going on over there. Yeah, I mean we're really off topic here now, but uh, uh, <laughs> but there was a great you know great debate on uh, a monk debate uh, with Mark Stein and and Nigel Farage and. And uh, Simon Shama that was was on about the whole immigration issue, and it's just very very revealing. Real recently, and um, yeah, it's it's so ironic that the secular people are literally, you know, they it's it's weird. It's like well, they they know that this stuff is destroying them, but they're still embracing it. Like for instance, you know, maybe Angela Merkel, you know, the maybe she she's probably wanting to overcome the negative image that they had of Nazi Germany. And I understand that we want to be more accepting, embracing. We don't want to be racist or we don't want to be xenophobic, but in so doing, they're actually allowing people who are destroying their own people and displacing their own people even. And the irony, the irony behind that statement is, and that's what they're doing. But the irony of that is, is that this is, this is causing the far right parties to come out of the woodwork. Yes. Yeah. 
And then they get the blame for it all. Then it's like, see, they caused this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on here, you know? It's, yeah, it's insane. But just, you know, to bring it back to our, to our discussion, um, you know, I, I personally, you know, I, I don't think that there's, um, well, how can we put it? I'm not, I'm not as much in the camp of the guys who, who think that this is all Bible prophecy and all this kind of stuff. I, I, I'm just not in that camp. Uh, sure. I still think it's evil and, you know, we need to fight it and, and stamp it out or whatever, but I, I don't think it's all been prophesied in the Bible and all that. Cause that, that stuff has been going on for centuries where they keep saying it's the end and see the Bible prophesied all this, but it keep they're keep they keep well, being wrong over and over again you know i, I mean if you, you want to take the last 2000 years of christian existence i mean there's at least somewhere where christians of some part of some type yes. are being persecuted by somebody i mean you mentioned yeah. we've talked about china almost the whole episode i mean it, it's gone on it's gone on in china for years and it's going on now and i just read recently like the other day that just recently they just went and dismantled in China. They dismantled thousands of um, crucifixes that that were uh, displayed all around the country to try to, as part of this thing of you know we got to stamp out this excessive religious fervor, you know. So yeah, it's amazing. I have friends who are who are uh, secret uh, missionaries in that world, and it's just yeah, very oppressive. And in some ways, more than ever than ever before. You know, it's just outrageous. But don't don't worry, Brian. Donald Trump's gonna get it all figured out for us. <laughs> He's gonna bring Christmas back for us. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, I, one thing I want to talk to you about before we go, and that is since you are a film maker, you are a screenwriter. Uh, talking about, well, I'll put it like this: I went to see the movie Risen. Yes. Okay. And this was probably one of the best Christian themed movies I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it basically, it came down to kind of basic Christian apologetics about yeah. the resurrection. Yeah. And that's really basically what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the experience of the resurrection. I know, I think you've seen the movie as well. Yeah. It, well, before that movie they they showed the preview for God's Not Dead 2. And I thought to myself, what a contrast between this movie that I'm watching and potentially what that movie is going to be about. Yeah. Because we've talked about the Christian persecution, and I don't doubt that there's stuff that's going on, but sometimes I feel like with some of my fellow Christians, there's a lot of things that just like, is it persecution or is it... Are, are we just overreacting? And I feel like movies like God's not dead too, or God's not dead. And you were talking about how earlier about being in, you know, kids going to college and not being prepared for what they're being, but they're going to face. Yeah. And those kind of that, kind, those two movies, I think pretty much say like, well, it, it's kind of like we have this attitude that the rest of the world is evil. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> <laughs> that that we that we shouldn't be a part of that. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you understand what I'm saying there? Yeah, sure. yeah, an us and them mentality, exactly. Yeah, that's and it. You know, well, you know, I've I've got a few thoughts on that. I mean, first of all, yeah, I I thought Risen was probably one of the best Christian movies that wasn't a Christian. And the problem was was not the problem. The good thing was it it wasn't 
a Christian movie because it wasn't made by the people who make Christian movies for the Christian genre. It was a movie that just happened to be about Jesus Christ and the resurrection and a Roman soldier, truly a unique idea, a, an unbeliever trying to find the body of Jesus so he could stop this, you know, this, uh, this new movement that's starting up that's saying he rose from the dead. Well, find the body so we can quash it, right? That's right. a brilliant story idea. You know, it's like, oh, I wish I would have thought of that, you know. And it was made by film Hollywood filmmakers, and that's why it was so good, because they had not just good production values, but good understanding of story and such. Now, I do have one complaint. The ending was very weak, but... The, the story and the journey that was that was the story was really good yeah, and um, I agree. and you're right it it was bold Christian apologetics almost like wow you know this is amazing that they're how did they get this movie made through the Hollywood channels right uh, and and so I thought that you're right it was a good example that and the young Messiah which is just came out um, story yeah, I've Jesus, heard it's Jesus good as well child. yeah absolutely again Hollywood type filmmakers uh, uh, who, who care about quality and storytelling and all this. Um, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm embarrassed by most of the Christian stuff. I don't see a lot of it because I just have no interest. I don't, because the stuff that I've seen tends to offend me and I'm a Christian, you know? And, and, uh, <laughs> now, now, by the way, I might be a little bit different from you in the sense that I, you know, I actually do think that like, I would say that God's not too dead, uh, message or theme or whatever, knowing what it's about. I'm like, that's great because I believe that is going on, but the way they go about it and the, how they tell their stories is just, just, you know, maddeningly, um, simplistic and, 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 right. uh, you know, I, I totally agree that the quality and the way they go about it, the way they tell their stories is just ignorant, you know, and, and very much. Uh, and then they bring the, the guys from Duck Dynasty in, you know, they got to bring yeah, them in. Yeah, yeah, all in. that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, um, so, and but mostly, mostly what I just dislike about Christian movies in general is bad writing, bad acting, bad yeah. directing, you know. So it's like they're getting better with the camera work and and stuff like, and the editing is a little bit better. Uh, but look, it's it's just every genre of film has its tropes, has its formula. So there, I don't, by the way, I don't, I don't think there's a problem with having a Christian film genre. This is what Christians like to watch, you know, and I just don't like it, you know. Uh, but still, you, you know, so, and some of the things that have to be in there, you know, you got to have a person, you know, co go to church and say the sinner's prayer, these, some silly things like that. Um, that, that's what, what rings untrue to me, why I don't like it. But, but in and of itself, that the fact that there is this genre and this is what they like, you know what, that's no different than any genre. Because you know there are gay there are gay movies out there and that made only for gay people and and it's us them it's a whole how bad they treat gays everybody does that everybody sure sure so I don't think that the, I think that there's a little bit too much attack on the Christians uh, in my opinion um, I do think there is persecution going on uh, I just think gee it would have been great if they would have done it better <laughs> you know and I've had my own story ideas for that I think Luke wants to chime in here real uh, quick I, I just saw that whole. Uh, exclusively gay movie thing for the first time the other day. Uh, my mom got me like a $1 bin movie from Dollar General. Oh yeah. <clears throat> and at the beginning of it, uh, it's got a, it's got a gay couple talking about like how people don't need to pirate gay movies because it's, it's hurting the gay community. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> but you know, this and this us them thing, everybody had. And look, man, I tell you, there's nobody who's more us them than the secular world, right? Those those evil Christians who want to create a theocracy and take I mean, that's so ridiculous. That's never been true. So it's like the the more the biggest us them Well, unless you're Ted Cruz, but yeah, but the biggest us them has come from the secular community against the religious community. So, you know, I, I think that, yeah, there's some of that in there and, and, and I wouldn't prefer to be like that. But nevertheless, um, uh, the problem is been just that Christians don't. Here's the bottom line for me. The, pro, the biggest problem with it all is they don't value the art. They see the art as a tool for their message. Right. And because they see it that way, they will never value the art. Therefore, they're not valuing beauty. Therefore, they're not glorifying God because they think that the message is more important. And when that's the case, they will always be preachy, didactic, blah, 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 you know, and, and they will always sacrifice quality and everything else for their message, quality storytelling as well. Now, you know, because like I've often made the argument to people, look, uh, sorry, but Avatar is preachy, didactic, condemning. Oh yeah, it's us them. Okay? Oh yeah. So just because you're preachy doesn't mean Christians aren't don't have. It a was point. also a total ripoff of of Dances with Wolves and what yeah, uh, yeah. other movies. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, so, but but however, I still will say though, but he te- he does damn good storytelling buddy so i still think he was a great storyteller and that's why it's the most watched movie in all of history so there's something he does right that christians are not and so my in other words my thing is is you know i i don't mind if it's preacher didactic sometimes cuz there's a place for that but if you're going to do it at least do it well you know <laughs> And that's what they just don't do. And so I find myself unable to even watch these things because the ones that I have, I just cringe. Yeah. I, I mean, you mentioned Risen, you know, big budget behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, medium, great. Medium yeah. Great acting behind it. Uh, great story behind it. Okay. Well, you, you know, independent films get made all the time that are yes. good. Yes. Why can't you have a good independent Christian movie? And that's because when they're when they're when they're casting, they're saying, "Well, what's more important is rather than the person's acting skills, it's are they a Christian or whatever, you know, substitute it, or uh, you know, uh, what do I think it should be, or or uh, what matters is is the is the, the 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 meaning of the message of the movie anyway. So she's good enough, or he's good enough, you know. They don't value the quality, and that's why they're giving it up as long as the message is what they want, and they're getting make sure their points gotten across, you know. And this is why they, and this is what ruins them because, um, you know, I'm, you know, classic example is when you know Mel Gibson made the passion of the Christ and was showing it to evangelical leaders to get their input. There's so many of them that said, well, that's really good, but can't you put like John three sixteen at the end? They felt that the gospel just wasn't there. You know, unless you had the gospel. Th- I'm like, what? The gospel was just completely embodied in, in the entire the movie. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you, and this is because this is how Christians are, are foolish. They don't understand how storytelling works and, and they're missing it and they're valuing their, quote, message over the quality of the art. And whereas biblically they should be equal. Yes, you should, of course, value message. I, I do. But, but if you don't value the art equally, you know, then you're going to ultimately have less quality, you know. And so that's what's happening. 
I, I felt sorry for Jesus, man. <laughs> when I watched that movie, that, the whole time, that's all I could think. I was like, man, I'm not even Christian, but I just want to give him a hug right now. Keep, you're talking uh, about the passion, right, the, right, passion right. Yeah, the passion of the Christ. But another thing too, Brian, I've heard you mention before is, is that the characters like in, in, you know, in your book, I mean, you have imperfect characters. I mean, you have, you have love scenes in the book. I mean, you have characters that are really human and three dimensional characters. And it seems that a lot of these, like, like one of the, I can think of fireproof, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay the characters in it were just in completely two dimensional. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some of the issues, by the way, I, I, I applaud them. I applaud those guys, the movies that they're making uh, and courageous and stuff in, in one sense that what I like about the intent is they, they have a very, they have a very manly Christianity. You know, it's like, you know, Hey, Christianity is not just for wimps or sweet people or soft people. It's like men, you know, firemen, policemen, they can be Christians too. I like that. I like that intent. I like the fact that they're dealing with issues like pornography, which, you know, nobody, almost nobody does in, in movies. It's, it's an accepted norm in our society, but there's one that's sort of saying, like, look, Pornography can actually be destructive on your life. That's that's a good intent. I, I applaud them for that in, in the movie Fireproof, right? But you're right. It's like, at the end of the day, though, the way that they're dealing with it, I didn't believe any of it. I didn't believe yeah. the Christianity in there. And I'm a Christian. Because all, all I saw was Kirk Cameron smashing his computer. I mean, that's all, you know, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. almost and, like you had to just read between the lines of what was going on. Yeah, and that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh, you know, but I, I don't want to sit and attack them though, because I, you know, I do want to qualify everyone. I'm everything. I, I'm. I also feel like, look, I don't want to be these cynical Hollywood Christians because I live out here, and I don't like those people because you know they just, you know, they're just, they're just. There's, I don't know if there's any difference between them and Hollywood. Sometimes I don't even know if they're Christians. You know, like, well, is Christ even important to you? Because they all they do is like love attacking Christian movies, and that's all they do. They never see the good in it. And, and I even wonder about their faith, you know, well, I don't want to be the cynical Hollywood Christian either because yeah. I, I do believe that Christian movies are getting better. And even these ones that I don't like, they are still, I will admit they're a lot better than they were 10 years ago. And so they are, and they, they're seeing the, the, the need to have better quality, but there is still this sort of mentality where they found this niche market and they found the formula and they're reproducing the formula and the elements of the formula are not very good. They're, they're not good and they're going to perpetuate that, unfortunately. But, but there is, they're getting better and better in quality. And I'll, I'll grant them that. And, and I'm, I'm encouraged to see some of that, you know. Maybe they could just leave Doug Dynasty at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I yeah. guess uh, once I start my amateur filmmaking, I'm, I know what to do now <laughs> make, make awesome Christian movies. <laughs> well, there you it, go, it, Lurk. <laughs> I'm telling you, it is a burgeoning market out here. It really is. They're all looking, secular companies are all looking for, uh, I know some of them are looking for this Christian stuff. Let's do the, let's do the stuff that they want because we want to make money, you know? Any, any feelers for, uh, as far as like getting any of your uh, books, uh, made as movies? Uh, at this point there's, there's nothing happening for those. There are some doorways for some future possibilities but right now nothing's particularly happening but i am actually writing a bible movie for a secular hollywood company that makes real movies and and uh if i can continue to persuade them that this is really good uh they'll make the movie it's not like a studio where it languishes for you know years and years um so all i can say is that these guys want to make a movie 
and they're Hollywood movie makers, and they don't want to tick off the uh, the audience. So surprise, they want to make it consistent with the Bible. They don't want to go astray from the Bible, you know, like Noah and Exodus and stuff, which is actually cool. But at the same time, they're willing to have some imaginative exploration that I bring to to the table with with my approach to Bible stories. And all I can say right now is is that I'm really excited. If this thing starts happening, it's going to be the coolest Bible movie that will have come out in the last ten years. And you, and it's not the one you would expect, like David or you know some big, huge, epic thing. It's it's going to be a surprise. Yeah. I, I can't go into more detail right now. Well, there is that TV so. series on David that's coming out. And Bam, you know, it's already gone. After two two, uh, I heard that two after two um, uh, what episodes? Yeah, it they've kiboshed it. Really? So I don't know what happened. I don't know if they've got zero ratings or whatever, but I, I don't know what happened. But I, I heard there were a lot of complaints about the sex and violence in it. You know, it's like Game of Thrones type of thing. And, well, and the Christians. Old Testament is full of that stuff. I know, I know, I know. And see, that's, that's the problem is. The problem is this, is that there is a significant amount of Christians who do get it. They do appreciate quality filmmaking. They realize there's a place for sex and violence within a proper context and such. But there is still a significant you know, and I'm not going to say this is bad or good. I'm just saying, the you got to know your audience, man. And the the fact is, is the Christian audience when you're dealing with their, they'll watch a lot of movies, stuff on TV that they won't admit to, right? But when you're dealing with their books, you know, their the Bible, um, they've just they just can't handle the the Game of Thrones type of sex and violence stuff. Yeah, and it's just a, a reality you have to deal with. I'm I'm not even saying it's automatically bad you know um i can deal with that uh and i do think it's it's too prudish and and i agree with you my arguments is that if you do do the bible right on the movie on a movie sometimes it'll be nc-17 or at least certainly r-rated hard r-rated you know yeah so i don't have any problem with that but it, i just think the christian community isn't quite there yet on it but they're they're Look, there's a lot who do do appreciate it. I know because I'm selling a lot of my books. My books, you know, have sex and violence in them, but it's all biblically contextual. But still, a lot of Christians are buying them. So there is enough that do appreciate it. That just has to give it some time, you know. Well, if you ever do a TV show, uh, don't ever do a cliffhanger with a camera point of view ending. Oh, like, like the uh, dead. Yes, <laughs> that was terrible. Oh, they should I be know. ashamed of themselves. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I want to, I want to <laughs> check out. I want to check out those David episodes to really see why. Yeah. Because I really wonder. Because uh, I think you can probably find them somewhere. But um, I really, I don't know that. I didn't hear the exact details why. So I, I just don't know. Um, but honestly, I, I, I think like the problem with the movies, like Noah. And Exodus, you know, I think that the reason why they were disliked so much is really not because they they took creative license. I actually think Christians don't have as much of a problem with creative license, and I don't think, and I think that you can get away with some sex, some sex and violence as long as it's not, you know, too ex, too excessive. But the, but it's just mostly like, are you a are you are you sticking to the basic message, you know? And and that's the thing that that I think Christians were reacting to with those movies, like the God in in the Exodus movie that came out. He was a temper tantrum child. Well, that's offending the very God that Christians and Jews worship. So yeah, that that's not going to go over well. That's not going to go over well. And I don't blame them. I don't blame Christians for reacting. It was a bad movie anyway, but nonetheless. 
and the Noah thing is the same thing. It's like, you know, it's, it's just becomes this environmentalist uh, parable for, uh, you know, uh, an earth God. And it's like, well, that's not the view. That's not the biblical view. And Christians, you know, even if you would have had the whole thing as it was, but just not this sort of spin to turn it into environmentalist parable, Christians probably wouldn't have had a problem with it, you know? It was also all Gnosticism and Kabbalah, yeah. too. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Aronofsky, I mean. <laughs> yeah, he, he, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's a whole other area of it. But, but I'm just saying, it's like all that stuff that made it into a message for something. In other words, they were subverting it. They were using the biblical story as a message for something else. When you do that, people won't like it. Yeah. So, and, and I'm saying this because I'm telling you, when my, if my movie comes out, I'm going to have lots. Let me tell you, people are going to go, hey, that's not in the Bible, but they're not going to have a problem with it because it's going to be consistent with the basic heart and soul of what the story was, you know? Well, Brian, we are out of time, but real quick, tell everybody where they can get your books and people can contact you. All the information on Gadawa.com. You'll find all the information on the series, lots of cool pictures, free articles. I cast all my characters in my books so you get to see them. Uh, lots of artwork and all kinds of cool stuff. It's a very uh, um, uh, information-rich, entertainment-rich website, Gadawa.com, for everything on the series. But if you just want to go and look, check out the basics on the novels, everything is at Amazon.com. Audiobooks, Kindle, and uh, paperback versions of all my books are all at Amazon.com. Excellent. Well, thank you, Brian. You've been an excellent guest. We've enjoyed having you. And uh, stay on the line for us, and we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. All right, everybody. We're back on Conspiracy Normal. A wonderful interview with uh, Mr. Brian Godawa. Yes, sir. It was, yeah. uh, it was quite enjoyable. I got a lot out of that interview. Sorry I went, to, went a little Christian on you guys. Yeah, I I, I faded out a, a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, though, I, I was serious, man. I I really do want to get into films. I mean, because I I don't know anything about it at all, and that that would be like absolutely perfect to make the same kind of twisted, like messed up movie that I am wanting to make. Uh-huh. But but then then throw that Christian themed stuff in it in the end, and then all of a sudden, boom! At the end of the movie, it's a Christian movie. <laughs> you know, with with the message. With- we, well, you know, we were talking about uh, we we were talking about was it the uh, with Brian? We actually talked about before we started the interview with him. Was he was talking about a movie called The Addiction? Yeah, and apparently, I I mean, I never heard of it before, but apparently, it's it it has some real deep kind of philosophical kind of quasi kind of Christian themes to it. I mean, it, it's definitely possible to put those kind of those those kind of themes in there, for for sure. Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't. It does. It, not everything has to be always just like blatant in your face, like he was describing with the Passion of the Christ. It was like, you know, they wanted the people wanted to put in John three sixteen at the end. Like, well, I mean, the whole movie is a testament to the gospel. I mean, the whole thing. <laughs> Is well, like, if you want to call it a testament, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'd say more like a bloodbath. Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty <laughs> bloody. I, mean, I think we we were making a joke there that uh, probably probably a lot of Satanists went to see that movie. Yeah, because they enjoyed it. They're all know? smirking and they they know like the specific time. Yeah, that they want to see uh, slow mo. And however, at the end, you know, they they were probably like, oh man, he rose again anyway. And- <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, this movie sucks. <laughs> I mean, that would be the satanic movie, right? Where they kill Christ and he doesn't rise again. I mean, that would that, that would make more sense for the Satanists. And the, kind of, it's kind of counterproductive for them. Maybe the, maybe on the DVD there's an alternate ending. Oh uh, yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to appeal to every demographic. Well, maybe, maybe they'll put something like uh, Mel Gibson yelling about Jews and uh, <laughs> at the end of the movie. Um, yeah. I I do want to say a little bit about like the Christian kind of persecution stuff though. Uh, we kind of you guys thoughts about that. Um, I want to get your thoughts on that, Rob. Well, I' not really sure what to think about that. I don't I don't ever notice it. Yeah, because I'm not a Christian, so I don't I don't think about it. But you know, there's a lot going on right now. Um especially after they, they did the whole gay marriage ruling. And we've got, especially down here in the South, we got several States that are trying to uh, kind of reverse it. Mm. Uh, one of the things that uh, Georgia had some kind of law for like, a lot of it has to do with transgender bathrooms, whether transgender oh, no. people can go into bathrooms. I know, man. Yeah. And- yeah. You know, you know immediately in my household that that's already an argument because <laughs> I, I scoff at it and think it's like not a big deal. At all. I'm like, why is this even an issue? But well, well, there's other things too, like the whole like you know should 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 bakers make cakes for gay weddings and all these kind of things, which to me almost seems like kind of a contrived issue in a way because it's just like you're taking this thing that might happen somewhere down the road and you're just saying, and you're, and you're saying that, Oh, you're causing it to happen then as if like this remote possibility is going to somehow occur and you're going to, you're going to bring that up as, as, as the big deal of the whole, of the whole controversy. Like I've never, I've never really, I've never really understood that. So, I don't know. I mean, people got to ask themselves, like especially Christians. I think of if you're going to if you're going to be in there and you're going to talk about these religious freedom laws, uh, you know, it's real weird because there's this this fine line between like the civil rights of these gay people and the f- religious freedom laws, or the religious freedom of the people that refuse them service. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's so contradictory. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It, yeah, it is. It's like, it's like, wh- which one <laughs> does, does, is one going to infringe the other? And, uh, ask you guys, like if you're in the, the restroom and you see, a a woman, what, or, or what appears to be a woman, like come into the bathroom, like, would you make a big deal out of it and freak out, or would you just go about your business, wash your hands, and walk I'd out of the damn bathroom? Probably go about my business, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and- I mean, that's why it's ridiculous on either side. It's like it's like this. It's it's more contrived controversy. It's it's kind of like the 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 gay rights people and the transgendered LGBTQ, the entire alphabet. All, all those people want to make this controversy and then you got the other people on the other side the really right-wing evangelical christians are saying my my religious rights are being being persecuted because of this and it's kind of like 
do the regular people that just go about their job, like Luke was saying, go to the bathroom and wash their hands and somebody walks in there, are you going to really care? Right. Exactly. Are you, are you going to really know? In some instances, like the example I was making, like, yes, you will know because like being transgender, like they have the choice of picking either one, I guess. Uh, I I mean, does it, does it work? Does it work in reality? I guess is, is the point. And like these, these state legislatures that are coming up with these laws to try to, to, to restrict this thing or that thing. And then all of a sudden, like in Georgia, the, the governor knocked it down because, you know, the people in Hollywood uh, were saying that they wanted to, that they weren't going to film, uh, film stuff in Georgia anymore because of, because of that. So the, the governor vetoed it. And then North Carolina is doing the same thing. Tennessee's got some kind of law going on. It's like, we've got this culture war here between the two sides now. And like I was describing the creationists and the evolutionists, you know, it's like being between the Nazis and the communists in Operation Barbarossa. You're just, you're caught between these two different opposing uh, ideological fundamentalist viewpoints on either side. And it's like, I, I have, I've almost come to the point where it's just like, I don't care. Right. Well, welcome to my, my side. But That's if, my- <laughs> but if some, but if somebody's religious rights are actually being persecuted, I do care. And if somebody's civil rights are being persecuted, I do care. But is any of that actually happening? Yeah, well, I see what you're saying. And that, that, that's kind of a better answer to the first question you asked me. Um, it's a, it's, it's more that I'm just, I'm not involved in it in any way whatsoever. It's not that I don't, I don't care so much as it's just that from being outside of the situation, I'm not being emotionally charged on either end of it. It just seems kind of silly. Right. It's like with the cake thing, all of a sudden that just came out of nowhere and it came from some group on the religious side that was that got some people in Indiana to say that we're not going to bake a cake for for gay people in their wedding <laughs> when apparently I don't think any gay people asked them to ever break a cake for them they just decided to volunteer that information <sighs> you know it's like why is it, it's just a cause. It's just to cause some kind of controversy. I want to show everyone that I'm anti-gay, and yeah. I'm, I'm going to be demonstrating that I won't provide any services to the to the darn gays. And, and and then and then on the other side, it's 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 like, well, you're not going to make my cake. I'm I feel I feel persecuted. <laughs> now there are things going on like gays can't adopt people. People are being refused marriage licenses, those type of things, those are happening. But it's like, it's just these controversies that we hear day in, day out. They're, they almost seem not real. Well, well, as far as the adoption thing too, man, like I've, I've known um, people I went to school with who are perfectly capable, like have everything, all the prerequisites of, 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 a father and mother and a child and they can't get it. You know, it, it's, it's difficult. The adoption yeah. process is like, they turn a lot of people down that are perfectly e- eligible for it. I just think that, you, you know, Hey, like Brian said, there is, 
there's real Christian persecution going on in the world. There's real gay persecution going on in the world. Yeah. But there's also people in this world that have on both sides that have a persecution complex. Yeah. It's like they look for somebody persecuting them. Yeah. Or imagined persecution. Mun- mundane complex. Yeah. <laughs> My life's not very interesting. <laughs> well, there's nothing else to add, guys. I think we'll uh we'll call it a night. Well, let's find something to complain about first. We need to find something to complain about. We'll find something to complain about by next week. Uh, <laughs> next week, guys, we have uh, Joshua Cutchin coming on, and we're going to talk about his book, Trojan Feast, which is a book about the food and drink offerings of fairies, aliens, and Sasquatch. This is going to be a very interesting show, guys. We're going to talk about some very interesting um high strangeness but first i want to say this um as far as where you guys can listen to us we are on a quite a few networks now of course we're still on the fringe radio network we are also on ipbn uh we're on tuesdays on there and also on saturdays we're on dark matters network that's at uh that is at uh, about i think our time 11 to 1 at night, and then also we are on deprogrammed radio as well. And I want to give a shout out to the Leisure Hour, which is doing really well. Uh, Jeff has been advertising us on that show. And tell a little bit about the Leisure Hour for everybody. Oh, it's uh, that's your, that's your, also your baby. Yeah, yeah, it's our little sister show. Uh, it's a uh, basically. Formatted about an hour and a half show. We sit down with uh, a lot of Nashville comedians, a um, couple of musicians, or anyone that's got something going on here locally, and just kind of have a couple of drinks and chat about it. And make silly songs. Make silly songs. <laughs> that, that, are, that are hilarious. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, these these guys are really funny. If you guys want to know about what's going on in Nashville, apparently we have a huge like burgeoning co- comedy scene here. So if you guys want to know what's going on there, tell them where they can they can get that show, Rob. Oh, uh, it's the best way is through our website at www.hourleisure.com. It's Our Leisure. And there's links to the iTunes page and Stitcher or our Facebook page, uh, YouTube channel. Yep, absolutely. Can't, can't re- recommend it more. I, I enjoy listening to it when I'm when I'm out uh, riding around on Friday nights. So anything else we want to add, Luke? Okay, that's I think that's as good as any. All right, guys, that's how I, that's how I feel right now. <laughs> you feel like a. <laughs> All right, guys, join us back next week. We will be back on Conspiranormal. Make sure you clean it up, hon.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.